Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 5. As we continue working our way through the book of 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning, we come to chapter 5, and as we've already seen so far at this point, David is firmly seated on the throne of Israel. The nation has been reunited. It was split for many years, and David is now king over all of Israel. And we pick it up in 2 Samuel 5, verse 17. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there. And David and his men carried them away. These would be the little idols that the Philistines brought into battle as good luck charms. And verse 22, Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord. And he said, You shall not go up, the Lord said to him. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly for then the Lord will go out before you and to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so and the Lord com- as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. The thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is that David faced each new battle with the Philistines as unique, and therefore he sought the Lord for fresh guidance. He didn't assume just because he was fighting the same enemy, that God would use the same strategy he had used to give him the prior victory. He prayed, God gave him fresh guidance for this new situation. You know, guys, it's easy to become complacent and begin to make assumptions as to how God is going to work in any given situation in our lives. You know, we kind of think of this to ourselves I fought this battle before, I know how to win, this will be easy. Why pray? It's a no-brainer. But David didn't fall into that trap. And the result was, because he constantly inquired of the Lord, he experienced one victory after another, all because, listen, he trusted in the Lord with all of his heart, didn't lean or depend on his own understanding of the situation in every new battle. He sought the Lord, and the Lord directed him in which way or which path he should take. Now, years later, those very words will be written by David's son, Solomon, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Many of us have memorized them and have become life verses. But who's to say that Solomon didn't come across this wisdom from watching his father handle each new situation the way David did? David prayed for each situation he faced. God gave him direction and, of course, with it, the victory. You know, Paul the Apostle said in Romans 15, verse 4, 
that everything written in the Old Testament scriptures was placed there by the Holy Spirit for our learning, for our instruction, that we might be equipped, that's true, but also that we would have hope for every situation we face as the people of God in the New Testament times. Of course, that's not always how God's people work, all right? In his commentary on this passage, Adam Clark, a noted commentator, noted the remarkable guidance of God in David's life and asked a good question. He said, and I quote, How is it that such supernatural directions and assistance are not communicated now? Where's all this God leading everybody, his people, today? He said, because they're not asked for. And they are not asked for because they are not expected. <laughs> and they are not expected because men have not faith. He's talking about Christian men and women. And they have not faith because they are under a refined spirit of atheism. Well, Blackaby said it. He said that for many Christians, most evangelicals, I should say, probably all evangelicals, are conservative in our theology, but we are practical atheists. We believe the right things. We just don't believe God's going to do those things in our lives. Okay, We believe in God. We believe in all the doctrines related to God. But when it comes to God working in our lives individually, we often blow it. We often don't really believe God is going to work. Look, after the Philistines came against David the first time and he prayed, God gave him the victory. They went home with their tails between their legs, hung around for a while, regrouped, and came after David a second time. Right? And David once again sought God's will. David didn't assume, you know, same old enemy. God would work with the same old strategy. No. He prayed, God gave him a new battle plan, and David obeyed, and God gave him the victory. Uh, this is very unlike, as we studied the book of Joshua a few years ago, this was unlike what Joshua and the men of Israel experienced in Joshua 7 when they went up against the men of Ai. You remember the story how that before they fought the men of Ai, which was a very kind of a small town, they had first faced the people of Jericho in battle. Now, the people of Jericho, the men of Jericho, were the strongest stronghold of the enemy in the Promised Land. I mean, Jericho was the strongest enemy Israel would face. God brought them up against the uh, people of Jericho first, right? Gave them a strategy. They followed it. They were victorious. And they are now flush with victory. At least I believe they were. And so they now go on to attempt to defeat Ai, small insignificant place but joshua and his men were humiliated in this battle when this little town defeated them and 36 israeli soldiers died in battle why did israel lose that battle i think for a couple of main reasons number one israel had become self-confident you don't have to turn there but in joshua 7 verse 3 after they reconnoitered uh, Ai. In other words, they sent spies out to find out the weaknesses and all. Here come the spies back, reporting back to Joshua. And these soldiers said to Joshua, do not let all the people go up, but let all, you know, about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Uh, do not weary all the people uh, there, for the people of Ai are few. In other words, Joshua, we've scoped out the place. It's nothing. All right? It's nothing. We don't need a whole army. Just give us a couple, 3,000 guys. We'll go down there, beat them up, you know, and then we'll come back. You know, let the rest of the army have a, a break, some time off, right? Unfortunately, as it so often happens, when God gives us victory over some, you know, problem or sin or whatever in our life, 
we begin to kind of take it for granted. We often even take credit for what God has done. We start thinking it was us, right? God gave us the victory, but somewhere along the way, then we start thinking, well, you know, I did that. And what happens is we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Paul said, Romans 12, don't do that. And of course, pride sets in. And what does God have to do? He has to let us fall. He warned us, pride goes before a fall. Now, the only way we're going to continue walking in strength and victory is if we walk humbly before our God. We start taking credit for what God's doing. Then you know what? He just moves out of the way. Boom. On our face on the ground. God says, how is it down there? Well, Lord, what am I doing down here? I mean, you know, it's like, why did you let me fall? I didn't let you fall. You fell. You fell because you weren't trusting me anymore. You're looking to yourself, patting yourself in the back, throwing roses at yourself. Okay? Like, you did it. I love what Alan Redpath had to say about this. Alan Redpath, phenomenal man of God, with the Lord right now. If you've read any of Alan Redpath's books, <laughs> he never wrote the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And he just told it like it is. I mean, he didn't placate. He would preach to penetrate. And that was all there was to it. Listen to what he has to say. He said, and I quote, There is no moment so perilous as when, for the first time in his Christian life, the man or woman of God has experienced deliverance from sin. At such times, we begin to take pride in ourselves and to boast that our own arm has saved us. We so easily imagine that because we have achieved victory once, God has imparted to us some new strength, which will see us through all our earthly journey. Alas, how utterly contradictory to the truth that is. The fact is that apart from the grace of God and the blood of Jesus, the smallest temptation will be too powerful for us. The victories we win in fellowship with a risen Christ impart no strength to us for the future. The victory you won yesterday will not bring you power today. The greatest lesson that the child of God has to learn is the lesson learned by Paul himself when he said, In my flesh there dwells no good thing, and that when I am weak, I am strong. Redpath says, For the greatest cause of failure in Christian living is just this, imagining that the victory God has given us has imparted strength to us to win every battle. When it, is, when it has done nothing of the kind. Remember, fellow Christian, the first reason for failure at AI was self-confidence, end quote. So Israel was defeated because they got cocky, they got self-confident. Number two, they were defeated because Joshua, their leader, didn't pray, didn't seek guidance from the Lord. Unlike the Battle of Jericho, when you're up against a very formidable enemy, Jericho was a terrifying enemy to go up against. And Joshua, the night before, is out praying, walking, meditating, read Joshua 5, right? But here comes the next battle, Ai. Small, insignificant place. No big deal, he thought. If we don't see him in Joshua at all praying, the book of Joshua, uh, he's not praying or seeking direction from the Lord before letting his men go up to fight against the men of Ai. I believe Joshua here is overconfident. Again, he also was flush with victory over Jericho, and instead of seeking God, he took counsel from his guys. Now look, the Bible says it's wise to surround yourself with good counselors, but not in place of the Lord. Okay? Sometimes we're looking to men or women, men and women, to give us counsel and input into our lives, and we're not really praying. Joshua made that mistake. I'll read Joshua 7, verse 3 once again. And here's Joshua's guys, his soldiers. 
They come to him, and they basically said, look, Joshua, we've scoped this place out. It's nothing. We don't have to take the whole army. Give us two or 3,000 guys. We'll go down there and take care of them. And so Joshua listened to his men, did not seek counsel of the Lord. Uh, this is an important lesson for all of God's children to learn. Often when we're facing a great challenge, crisis, or problem in our life, as Christians, nobody has to tell us to go pray, right? At that point, it's like breathing. Nobody has to tell you, okay, breathe. You just do it. When we're facing a giant challenge or a crisis or, you know, we've just gotten word back from the doctor, we've got a very serious disease, nobody has to go tell us, well, you better go pray now. We just do it automatically, don't we? But then we come across the AIs in our walk with God. Uh, these are problems that seem small and easily managed. They're, you know, no-brainers. And that's the title of this message. Why pray? It's a no-brainer. Well, when you don't pray, you're not really having any, you, know, you are a no-brainer, okay? <laughs> you know, these problems seem small, easily managed. You know, why bother God? I don't need to pray about it. I'll just handle it. You know, I can take care of this one. How do we handle them? We handle them with our own wisdom and human understanding. The very thing God has told us not to do in his word because, listen, when we do that, it only makes things worse. You want a little problem to turn into a big problem? Just start messing with it. Just start trying to fix it, you know? You know what the word AI means? Ruin. Ruin. And the AIs, guys, in our lives will lead to ruin if we take these situations lightly and try to handle them ourselves instead of seeking counsel of the Lord. This can be applied to many different things. I'm sure you can fill in the blanks in your own life. Let me just tell you a personal story. It's going back a number of years. Um, my son needed a car because he just finished high school, was working, and so we wanted to help him get a car, but I didn't have a lot of time. I mean, we, things were real busy in the church, and I, I, so I set aside a day, and I was going, we're going to get a car, okay, used car. And uh, so we looked around, and I didn't have time to pray. But that's okay. I've been buying cars a long time. You know, I might have thrown up a token prayer. I really didn't pray seriously about it. So we walked, and looked around, looked around. Found, I found a car that looked good. That's the problem, okay? And to me, looked good. Bought that car, and I am not kidding you, I'm not understating this, that car gave us so, many, so much trouble. We put so much money into that car fixing it, I could have bought a new car. I honestly could have bought a new car. All because I didn't trust the Lord, bring it to Him. I relied on my own understanding, my wisdom, my expertise, so-called, and we got burned. Folks, that's a car Okay, I know Christians who are getting married without praying. If I was a young guy today looking to find a, a woman to settle down with, you had best believe I'd be fasting and praying. The minute I saw some gal that I thought, well, maybe she's the right one. She loves the Lord and loves, you know. I would be fasting and praying to make sure that she was the one God had given to me. And I would hope she would be doing the same. But, you know, we, we all can give our little stories about things we didn't really pray about. It was not really a big deal, we thought, and we just started to handle it ourselves, and the whole thing blew up on us. This is what we're talking about. I mean, if Joshua had called a prayer meeting the night before they went up to attack Ai, if he as the leader of Israel would have said, you know what, uh, there's a lot of people depending on me, 
I'm in charge of this nation. And if I'm not really following God, we're in trouble. I better hold a little prayer meeting to find out how God wants us to deal with this next battle. If he had done that, God would have spoken to his heart and says, Joshua, there's sin in the camp. Read chapter 7. There's sin in the camp, and until you take care of it, you're not going to be able to be victorious over your enemies. And Joshua would have handled it, and 36 Israeli soldiers would not have died. Look, as Christians, we all know that prayer is important and it's powerful. We've all read the book of James, who said, The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. We all know that. And yet most of us have to confess that our prayer lives are often sporadic, inadequate, inconsistent, and in some cases non-existent. Why is this? I mean, if we believe that prayer is really that powerful, why don't we pray more? Well, let me give you a few reasons, okay? Reason number one, we have made prayer complicated and cumbersome. Why have we done this? Prayer is the simplest concept in the universe, talking to God, okay? Talking, just talking to God as a child to a father. Why have we made prayer so, so complicated and cumbersome? You want to know why? We've listened to the devil who has tried to tell us, look, unless you're going to pray for an hour, you know, at least, uh, you know, God's not going to pay attention. He won't hear you unless, you know, except for your much speaking is the idea. And we buy into that. We think short prayers are unspiritual prayers. So if we're not really going to pray 45 minutes to an hour, hey, God's really not going to listen. He's not going to answer. And, uh, you know, therefore, because we believe prayer is difficult and time-consuming, we feel like, look, I I really don't have the time to invest uh, in in an hour's worth of prayer on a regular basis. Um, You know, and uh, we just feel like we don't have the will to put that kind of effort into our prayer life. So often, guess what? We don't pray at all. We don't pray at all. And yet Jesus himself taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that our Heavenly Father already knows what we need, even before we ask him, right? And so Jesus said in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8, And when you pray, don't use vain repetitions like the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. And I'm convinced that God will often answer little short prayers because he wants to encourage us to pray more. I mean, we don't always have time, first of all, to pray for a half hour or an hour in, you know, in prayer. I mean, I think about Peter taking a walk in the Sea of Galilee one night. Takes his eyes off the Lord, begins to what? Sink. You think he had time to spend an hour in prayer? He just said, Lord, save me. The Lord reached out and pulled him out of the water. Sometimes we don't, you know, it's good to spend time, get along with the Lord at times, and really spend some quality time in prayer. But honestly, guys, Paul said pray without ceasing. You know, and I'm always praying, walking, driving the car. If you're going to pray driving the car, watching pray is a good exhortation, okay? (laughs) But the idea is that, you know what? God listens to all kinds of prayers, all kinds of prayers. Now, the second reason we don't often pray as we should, because let's face it, we're lazy and self-satisfied. We've got it good in this country. You know, we don't really have to pray and ask God to provide our daily bread. We are really blessed. 
And that's a double-edged sword because God said to Israel when they entered into the promised land, look, I'm going to lead you into the land I promised you. And you're going to, you know, you're going to live in houses you didn't build, drink from wells you didn't dig, eat from vineyards you didn't plant. Here's the danger God said. Once you are, are in the land and all these blessings, don't forget about me. Don't forget about me. Because with blessings tend to bring with them self-reliance. Kind of a feelings of being self-satisfied. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, it is easy to become so, so satisfied with physical blessings that we have little desire for spiritual blessings and to become so dependent on our physical resources that we feel little need for spiritual resources. When programs, methods, and money produce such obvious and impressive results, there is a proneness to confuse human success with divine blessing. A happy marriage where children are well-behaved and all are enjoying a church that is growing tends to make people smug and self-satisfied. They can even become practical humanists, living as if God were not necessary. When that happens, passionate longing for God and yearning for His help will be missing, and along with it, God's empowerment, end quote. Reason number three why we don't pray more? We're selfish, and I'm included in that. We're selfish. Often our attitude when it comes to prayer is, if there isn't anything in it for me, I'm not interested in doing it. It's true, guys. Prayer is one of the most unselfish things you can do. There's nothing in it for you. It's all about praying for someone else. We're talking about intercessory prayer. And that's why I believe prayer is one of the most blessed things we can do it'll be one of the most rewarded things in heaven when we finally get there because especially in our culture time is so valuable to us we would rather give our money to the work of god than to spend time praying for others because we just it's so valuable our time we're so busy we just feel like you know that's something i can't afford to give i can give some money but i can't afford to give my time but i'll tell you what those who really understand the importance of intercessory prayer and use their time to bless others by praying for them, again, I believe will be some of the most rewarded in heaven. I heard a story, true story, years ago. Let me read it to you. It's about a young gal, a little girl. Well, she was maybe about maybe 12, 14, and she contracted a very serious illness, was not, uh, was not expected to recover. The story goes, because of her love for Jesus, she was troubled that she had not been able to do more for him in her short life. Her pastor suggested that she make a list of people in their little town who needed Christ and pray that they might put their faith in him. She took his advice, made a list, and prayed often for each person. Sometime later, God began to stir a revival in that village. The girl heard of people who were coming to Christ and prayed even more. As she heard reports, she circled off or she checked off the names of those who had been led to the Lord. After the girl died, a prayer list with the names of 56 people were found under her pillow. All had put their faith in Christ, the last one the night before her death. You think she's going to have some crowns in heaven? I think so. I'll give you one more reason we don't pray like we should. We really don't believe prayer is going to change my circumstances. Now, it's not that we don't believe in the power of prayer. We do. As Christians, we've all heard stories. We all know people who prayed and maybe received a healing. 
or a miracle of some kind. We know prayer is powerful. The Word says it. We see it in people's lives. It's just that often we don't believe it's going to have any effect in my life personally. Why? Why do we feel that way? Well, because we've allowed the devil to convince us we're not worthy of God's blessings or help. The reasoning goes like this. I'm such a worthless loser as a Christian. I'm always blowing it. I mean, you know, every time I pray, you know, nothing really happens because I'm just always messing up. Uh, Why would God want to help me? Why would God want to answer my prayers? You know why? Because he's gracious and he loves you. And the definition of grace is getting what you don't deserve from God. Do you realize that every gift God gives us we don't deserve, starting with salvation? So why does he do it? Because he loves us. We don't have to be worthy. In fact, if you come to God thinking you're worthy, and boy, there are those out there, come to God thinking that they're worthy. They're such wonderful people. I, I really deserve to, uh, you know, have God bless me. And then they wonder why overt sinners who have come to Christ are being blessed more than they are. Because the overt sinner understands they're a, they're, they were a sinner at one time. They, they are thankful for everything God gives them. They don't expect anything. But we have those who do expect things. In fact, some even believe that God owes them something. And those folks, they're not going to receive anything from the Lord. Guys, a strong prayer life is just as much a gift of God's grace. Listen to me now. A strong, consistent prayer life is just as much a gift of God's grace as is any discipline in the Christian life. As Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Andrew Murray, in his famous book, Living a Prayerful Life, he says, and I'll paraphrase, he says, look, he says, I know that, you know, as Christians, we know we should pray more. We know that prayer is powerful, yet we often don't find the consistency to pray as we ought. We have spurts where we are faithful, and then after a while, we fall by the wayside with our prayer life. I mean, we just don't maintain a consistency. What does that produce? The devil condemns us. We feel unworthy. All the while, uh, Murray said, if we only understood Jesus looking down from heaven upon us with such love in his eyes, saying, you know, I know you can't pray. You're, you're feeling condemned because you can't pray consistently? I know that. I never asked you in your own strength to pray or do any devotion or discipline. Don't you understand everything you need to live the Christian life is a gift from me? And that includes your prayer life. To have a powerful, consistent prayer life is not in you to have or maintain. You have to let me live my life through you. And that means keep drawing close to me, keep depending on me, and be assured of this, I will teach you to pray. So guys, prayer is not only important, it's essential, especially when it comes to spiritual warfare. Listen, even as David found it essential for physical warfare. Now let's go back to our text. When David prayed the first time, if he should go up against the Philistines, remember they came out against him the first time, he prayed, the Lord simply said to him in verse 19, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Well, they come a second time, and he prayed, and the Lord says, don't go up. He says, do this rather, you shall circle around behind them, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, 
He said, then go after them. I will strike the Philistines and give you the victory. Have you thought about this? The question is, why did the Lord change his strategy with the second battle? I mean, isn't the Lord greater than any enemy? Could he not have knocked the Philistines over like a bunch of bowling pins? I mean, for that matter, why have a strategy at all? We're talking about God now, right? Why does God need a strategy? He's God. He can speak a word, vaporize the Philistines off the face of the earth. Why did God even use a strategy? I mean, it sounds like a waste of time, even foolishness. In fact, I think of the strategy that God gave Israel for fighting the battle of Jericho. What did he do? He told the armies of Israel, he said, all right, here's the strategy. Joshua, you tell the soldiers, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to march around the city once every day for six days. You march around the city once a day for six days. The seventh day, you march around seven times and shout. And then I'm going to knock the walls down and give you the victory. Now, can you imagine these soldiers? Can you imagine our guys, Navy SEALs, uh, Green Berets? All right, I'm going to lead you in battle against Fallujah. Now, here's what I want you to do. March around the city once a day for six days, seven, day, seven times shout, and then I'll give you the victory. I mean, come on. What does that do? It removes all self-dependence, what strong soldiers we are. Watch us go. We're going to kick their butts. You know, watch us work. We're American. You know, God is saying, look, I don't want any of that, okay? I don't want your pride. I don't want your bravado. I want you to be humble before your God. That's the only way you're going to have continued victory and success. Same with us. And so sometimes God will do things. He will give us what sounds like utter foolishness in the way of strategies. It's what the Bible calls the foolishness of God. Now be careful. We are not saying that God is foolish. All we're saying is we hear what God said to the Apostle Paul, that sometimes God will give us tactics and strategies for defeating the devil in our lives that seem foolish by human standards, all right? But God is God. And sometimes he will go to great lengths to do things that seem absolutely and utterly foolish. I've told this story before. Some of you are new. Let me tell you it again. All right. I was at a pastor's conference about five or six years ago. And one of the pastors was teaching a guy I know, good guy. And I know that, you know, this, he said this is a true story. I know the guy involved in this story. So I'm, this is not something I'm repeating or making up, of course. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is one of the best stories on this subject I've ever heard. He said, I know this guy who at this time was a young believer. I used to receive the Lord, was really high in the Lord, was really excited about the Lord, you know. And he was out one day, California, driving, uh, you know, somewhere. And he was going through a residential area in a kind of a canyon, okay. They build these houses there, right. And he's driving along, probably got his praise music on, high in the Lord, just having a great time, praise, beautiful day. Suddenly the Lord speaks to his heart. So I want you to pull over, put your head in the mailbox, and yell, Jesus loves you. Okay, that, that can't be from God. So he keeps driving. He dismisses it. A little while, the Lord says, stop your car, pull, put your head in one of those mailboxes, and yell, Jesus loves you. Get behind me, Satan. Keeps, keeps driving. You know, like, this can't be God. That guy would never tell me to do such a stupid, foolish thing. 
but it was so strong, eventually he had to stop, pull over. He sheepishly gets out of his car, looks around, <laughs> opens up a mailbox by the curb there, sticks his head inside and yells, Jesus loves you. Well, it's in a canyon. It's, it's echoing. Jesus loves you, loves you, loves you. He, he started making a beeline back for his car to get out of there. You know, And all of a sudden, some guy runs out of his house, the house that he just stuck his head in the mailbox. He said, hold it, hold it, hold it. He goes, did you just yell, Jesus loves me? Well, sir, I'm sorry. I'm a young Christian. I just, you know, I thought God was talking to me. Please don't call the police. I'm leaving. <laughs> you know what he said? He said, you don't understand. Two minutes ago, I was standing on a chair in my kitchen with a rope over the rafter around my neck. I was ready to commit suicide. And I said, God, if you're real, you better let me know right now. Suddenly he hears, Jesus loves you. Needless to say, he got saved that day. <laughs> now, would anybody who ever would go to a seminary and take a course on evangelism, <laughs> would any teacher or professor ever teach you that as a strategy to reach the lost? Of course not. It's foolish. But sometimes God will lead us to do foolish things, to show us. He doesn't need any of us. You think we, we think we're so hot? Boy, God's lucky to have me on his team. God wants to show us every once in a while he doesn't need any of us. He lets us serve him because he loves us. And he wants us to feel useful. But like when I was working in my garage when my kids were young, my boys would come out in the garage and say, Daddy, can we help? Okay. I didn't need their help. It was going to take five times as long to do the job because they were helping me, quote, unquote. But I love my kids. I want to spend time with my kids. And so it was all about us spending time together. It wasn't about them helping me. The same is true with our service for God. It's all about us spending time with him. It's not about us helping him. He doesn't need our help, right? Again, why does God use foolish-sounding tactics and strategies when it comes to warfare? Verse 24, there's what you do, David. Come behind the enemy, and then when you hear the sound of of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. You know, the commentators went wild with that. What was the marching? Was it angels marching up there? Was it God breathing on top of the trees and it sounded like a marching? Who cares? Who cares? Okay. I mean, you're missing the point. He does these things. Because he wants us to keep following his, his instructions in Proverbs and many other places, 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in everything you do. Acknowledge him. Bring him into the crisis, the situation, the problem, and he will direct your paths. God doesn't want us putting him in a box by working the same way all the time. Notice how Jesus worked in his earthly ministry. Notice how Jesus healed people. Sometimes he would touch them. Sometimes he would speak to them. Sometimes they weren't even there. He would speak and they were at home and they got healed. Sometimes he'd spit in the ground, make a little mud, smear it on their eyes, say, go wash your eyes, and they, they, their sight was restored. Jesus did these things, healed in a variety of ways, because he didn't want people putting him in a box. 
He didn't want people to say, well, here's how Jesus, here's how God always does it, so we don't need to pray. Let's just go ahead and do it this way. And if the Lord worked the same way all the time, we wouldn't depend on him for every new battle, crisis, or problem. We wouldn't pray. We would just say, why not handle this? And that's why God likes to mix things up, quote, unquote, to keep us on our knees and in a state of constant dependency upon him. Guys, don't stumble over the strategy God gives you for doing the work he's called you to do. Sometimes he's going to ask you to do things, and you're like, oh, Lord, come on. Look, I know a better way. That, that's the problem. Lord, okay, that, that, okay, that's good, but I know a better way. You know, if you just follow mine, I, I'll tell you, we'll, we'll get this thing done right. You know, a lot quicker, more efficient. God says, thank you very much. Just do what I've asked you to do, Okay. Don't get hung up on the strategy. Look, when I was a pastor for about three or four years, I decided, you know what, I don't know anything. I'm a complete idiot. I need to go maybe to school a little bit. So I enrolled in a Bible college in the area here. And one of the courses I took was a course on homiletics. Now, homiletics is the science of learning how to prepare Bible studies and messages. I didn't know how to outline a passage. I know nothing, all right? So I figured, okay, this is a good thing to do. Okay, just getting practical instruction. And one of the assignments was we had to learn how to outline sermons, because eventually you have to outline your own, right? So what the assignment was, we had to take a teaching from the founder of the college, Dr. Russell Mead, who at that time was with the Lord, good man, good man. And the teacher had a box of his cassette tapes, and we all reached and grabbed the tape. And our job was, assignment was to go home, listen to it, and outline the message. Which I did, but while I'm outlining the message, I got really into the message. I got really into the sermon. Now, I don't remember much of it. I remember this one thing, though, where Dr. Mead, very godly man, spirit-led, felt God was leading him to, uh, to go to Mexico, just over the border, a little village somewhere, and uh, evangelize some of the Mexican folks in that town. Okay, he was excited about that. But the Lord spoke to me before he left and said, look, before you go, buy some marbles. Buy some marbles? Lord, is that you? Buy some marbles. Yes, buy some marbles. Okay, bought the marbles. Crosses over the border, finds this little village, sees some kids playing in the street, and God says, okay, now go over to those kids and start playing marbles with them. Okay, Lord. So he kind of uh, kneels down and begins to play marbles with the kids there on the street. Well, after a while, the parents start coming out of the houses. Who is this American who's come down here to play marbles with our kids? First of all, they wanted to study the guy to make sure he wasn't a kook. <laughs> After they figured out, he seems like he's normal. And he sees him, him playing with their kids' marbles, and the kids are laughing, having a great time. It melted their hearts and opened their hearts for the gospel. That whole village wound up getting saved. Not that day, but he went, started going down. A relationship was built. He started going down on a regular basis. And the whole town got saved. All because one man listened to the voice of God who said, go get some marbles. A foolish thing to have someone do. Unless you're God. Then there's nothing foolish. Only are you going to obey or not obey. Because I don't need you. But I want to use you. So do what I say and we'll see some fruit here. Guys, again, we're done. Don't focus on the strategy. You'll miss the point. The strategy is secondary. What is primary is your dependence upon God to do his work and give you victory. And that's why we need to pray. 
to receive the strategy God wants to use in every situation, battle, and crisis that we face. Satan doesn't want you to pray. He does not want you to pray. He knows there's power in prayer. He knows God will lead you. And when God leads you, it's going to be fruitful. So I'll close with one final quote from Andrew Murray. He said, and I quote, Various difficulties make a full prayer life almost impossible. But thank God the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. God's call to prayer need not be a burden or a cause of guilt. He means for it to be a joy. Through prayer, he can give us strength for all we do and bring down his power to work through us in the lives, uh, to work through us in the lives of others. God's child can conquer anything by prayer. Is it any wonder that Satan does his utmost to snatch that weapon from the Christian or to hinder him or her in its daily use? End quote. Remember that. David was so successful because David trusted in the Lord. He sought God, he obeyed what God said, and God gave him one victory after the other. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. You go from this place and you pray, Lord Jesus, I can't do this. I'm not disciplined enough to pray consistently. But I pray, Galatians 2.20, the life that I now live, it's not me, it's a life, supernatural life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul said. Jesus is saying, I want to live my life through you. Trust me. Look to me by faith. And then listen to what I'm telling you. Obey and you will be victorious. You will be fruitful. May God give us the grace to apply that into our lives. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. Lord, again, you don't need any of us, but thank you that you use us. Thank you, Lord for the privilege of serving our great king, who happens to be our father as well. And Lord, we want to be more fruitful. We want to be more disciplined. Lord, we pray you give us grace to draw close to you every day, that you might live your life through us, that your power might be poured into us through your Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, that we would always do the things you are commanding us to do, that, Lord, we would see your spirit working in a way that would be incredible, that everyone would know it's not us, it's you, that you would receive all the glory. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to just bless our week and uh, fill us with your spirit afresh in Jesus' precious name. Amen.